Good evening. We have the call to worship. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation. Let us stand and sing hymn 484, 484. offerings.
Let us pray. We bring these tithes and offerings, God Almighty, because we love you, we love the kingdom of God, we pray, God, that through your spirit and providence, they would be used wisely and effectively for the people of God here at Providence and elsewhere where the monies go. We thank you, God, for giving us the prosperity that we can give. We can give some money to the work of God's kingdom, the support of the ministry, God, and expansion of your work across Denver and the world as we are able. We pray, Lord, that we would not be discouraged in our jobs and works throughout this week, God, but to know that we do it as unto you, and that the difficulties that we find ourselves in at work, at home, and in the neighborhood, Lord, throughout the week are there, and they are real, and we pray for them, Lord, that we would learn to overcome them, learn to deal with them, Lord, learn to suffer through them, because sometimes, Lord, there's very little we can do. But in all things, Lord, to give you glory and praise and honor. We ask, God, that you would be with our family members as we meet with them this week on Thanksgiving. And uh, for those who are not saved, for those who do not name the name of Christ Jesus, for those who play around with religion, God, uh, whatever other situation we may find ourselves in, it's hard for us, Lord, for there's very little we can say often with our family members. They know us. They know us so well. Uh, they know what buttons to push. Uh, they know our sins and perhaps throw them in our face, Lord, or hold them as a threat to us. Gracious God, may we learn patience, may we learn love, and always to pray, even if we cannot speak with our mouth. There comes a time, Lord, there's very little we can say that won't just uh, turn into an argument or shut down the whole time of fellowship with everyone else as well, Lord, and so we are quiet. Help us, Lord, to persevere nevertheless, to put our trust and hope in you. We ask, God, that you would move in the hearts of our family members, of our children, or our parents, our relatives, God, that they would indeed want to and follow Jesus Christ, to take the word of God seriously, Lord, to know that this world is full of evil and wickedness because of men's sin. It's not God's fault, it's their fault, it's the fault of mankind for rebelling against you and continuing that rebellion, Lord. They wish to do it, they desire sin, and they like it, no matter how much they rationalize or explain it away in their different philosophies or approaches to life. So, God, but you are greater and more powerful than that. You changed our hearts and our lives, God. We know you can change theirs. May you do so, Lord. May you do it quickly. Nevertheless, thy will be done. May we learn patience. Gracious God and Savior, we ask that you would be with our church and our uh, presbytery here, the presbytery of Dakota's God, that the churches here would be following your word. We would stand firm upon the promises of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the whole counsel of God, both the law and the gospel, and preach them and teach them in accordance to the audience, that what they need to hear, and instruction, Lord, to go over the basics, as we always need to hear now and then, Lord, to especially to strengthen uh, our tiredness and the pressures we have upon us in the society that shows more and more how much they uh, hate us. They hate, uh, Lord, Christianity and Christ and want nothing to do with it. Gracious God, we pray that we would nevertheless continue to read your word uh, throughout the week to study as we can, Lord, knowing that we're not pastors and we can't do that much work all the time, Lord, but a little here, a little there, or certainly prayer time, some memorization of the Bible text. God, go over the catechism, Lord, that reminds us and summarizes vast portions of the Bible in short order, and teach them to one another. Teach them to our children. Teach them to our parents, perhaps, uh, wherever else, and our neighbors, God. Help us, Lord. Help us as churches, as individuals in the churches, and as pastors and leaders in the churches and deacons, God, here in Denver and throughout the Dakotas and Utah and Wyoming, Lord Jesus, to stand firm, to be strong in the Lord, to encourage the saints to March with them, Lord, to discipline them, to admonish them, to preach them, preach to them, and give them the word of Christ. Help them, Lord, to live godly lives. 
Help them, we pray, and help our presbytery to stand firm, to do the right thing, those men who are on various and sundry committees, uh, that they would do their work before you, Lord, and that they would be uh, shown, be proven helpful to the presbytery and to the churches God above. We ask, Lord, that there would be wisdom at the presbytery to deal with various and uh, sundry issues that are commonplace uh, from time to time, and, of course, some unique ones that are upon us, Lord, and they would be dealt with in accordance to your word. Help us, God, uh, as a presbytery to be useful to the churches uh, underneath us, that is, within our bosom, and the regional church of the presbytery of the Dakotas, that we would pray for them, that we would encourage them, that we would give them direction and help and protection as we are able, Lord. Gracious God, be with us this evening. Strengthen us. We're thankful again for having a Lord's Day of rest and safe travel to and fro. Pray for rest tonight, Lord. We pray that our hearts will be open to the Word of God, to be encouraged in Psalm 17, to bring our petitions and our righteous pleas before you. Amen. Psalm 17 is our text. Psalm 17. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth should not transgress concerning the works of men. By the words of your lips I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep them as the apple of your eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who oppress me, from the deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed up their fat hearts. With their mouths they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand from men, O Lord, from the men of the world, you have, who have their portion in this life, and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Let us pray. With this psalm, God, we see the plea of the psalmist of David before you. He has a, a just cause, a righteous plea. And we have just causes as well, Lord, righteous pleas. May we not be timid and hold back from such pleas before you, Lord, as the world mocks us and warns us. And sometimes even in Christian circles, we're told it is unhumble and wrong even to bring a righteous cause before you. That we should be quiet. That it's just a way of complaining. Maybe complaining God. I cannot read people's heart, but I know what the psalmist does, and we know what the rest of the Word of God explains to us, God. There are times in which we should not shrink back from praying for protection and a righteous cause and for vindication therein. In your name we pray. Amen. Now you know this. You know the age in which we live in because you've experienced it for many decades now. We live in a victim age we are told, when everyone is quick to claim innocence because 
They're the hapless, helpless victim. And there's things that happen to them. Nothing they could have done. Everyone else's fault, not theirs. Everyone else is the bad guy. Businesses, government, private companies, public utilities, social media, neighbors, the church, whatever the case is. But living in a victimhood age does not mean that real victims don't exist, as you know. Victims do exist. There are injustices. We've seen many of them. Lately, it seems injustices abound, and therefore victims abound. If we think about it, we have been victims as well. A lie from a coworker, less pay than we're worth, a ruined reputation perhaps. Whatever the case, if we have been victims, it is okay to pray to God for help, to pray for protection, to pray for a righteous cause, to even plead for vindication. And we're going to see why here and what we should do in particular. The first point, a plea of innocence, a plea of innocence, verses 1 through 4. This is significant. Here, I just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. I am innocent, David says. He has a just cause. Here, a just cause, a righteous plea, as we see in the title here in Psalm 17 that we just, we're going to sing later. A righteous cause, or in other words, he's innocent. And what he has done is no wrong, and people have wronged him, in fact. And he, they need, he needs justice. He needs, they need to be corrected. And the situation needs to be set aright. Innocence, in other words, is real. It's a real category in the Christian life. There is innocence towards sins. Great sins, we read, of sins in, in general. That is, there are innocent people. Psalm 15, 5, we read, He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This is important. I said this before. Why? Because sometimes we get confused with our theology. We confuse categories. And we say, well, everyone's a sinner, therefore everyone is guilty. Yes, that's true with respect to perfection, with respect to justification, with respect to the warrant you have to get to heaven. You can only have Jesus Christ. But with respect to the justice of this earth and right and wrong between one another, there are relative differences. There are people who are more or less innocent with respect to many things in life, and particular sins in particular. There are many number of sins that you guys have not committed. I've not seen you guys commit arson, trying to tear down this building, take out your neighbors. You're innocent. You can say that. It's okay as a Christian to say you're innocent. David does it. He does it here. He does it often, you read in the Psalms. In fact, he talks about his righteousness, as you recall. What he means by that is not his justification as such, his warrant for heaven, but that relative and to his sanctification and the particular sins of his life, he has a subjective righteousness. He is holy. You are holy, brothers and sisters. You have done good works. I've talked about this before. You see this in Hebrews. And Wednesday night, we, I went over this in Hebrews uh, 10.25, I think it is, where he says God is faithful and just. God is not unfaithful and unjust to forget your works of righteousness, of good works. He keeps them in a book we read in the prophets. 
So do not forget that. Why is this important in this day and age? Because Christians are told, you're a sinner, shut up. Right? What's your problem? You sin too. I don't want to hear it. You see that? You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How's that relevant to, you know, you accusing me of trying to kill my neighbor? Because I'm a Christian and I'm against abortion and somehow I'm wicked because of that. That's what they tell you. Well, you're a sinner. How can you be against abortion? Well, (laughs) because I never claimed perfection. But my sin, whatever sins I happen to have, which you don't know because you're a stranger to me, I'm a stranger to you often. They're using it as what? You've heard me say this before. They use it as a club over your conscience to shut you down socially and politically and locally in your neighborhood or whatever else so you don't vote and do the actions you need to do as a Christian to protect life, to protect your family, protect your church, right? You see that connection? They play off your guilt. David here recognizes that God is his righteousness, as he says elsewhere. He's quoted by Paul in Romans 4. Paul quotes David saying, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are not imputed to him, which is to say he is, righteousness is imputed to him instead. That's the background. David believes that. So here is the case, we would say, in the category of sanctification. He is innocent. Innocence is real. There are innocent people, Psalm 15, 5, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. There's innocence towards great sin. Psalm 19, 13, keep back your servant away also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, that I then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. He believes it's possible. And it is in the Christian life. Again, you're not murderers. Why well, murder in my heart, brothers and sisters? You murder with your hands. That is of a greater, more heinous sin than in your heart. Don't let that confusion, again, society does this, churches do this, unfortunately. There is a difference. It's bad, to be sure, to have hatred in your heart. Yes, but it's not as heinous as actually killing somebody. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> So he talks about presumptuous sins. There is personal innocence, Psalm 26.6. I will wash my hands in innocence, David says, so I'll go about to your altar, O Lord. As far as he knows, he has no sin. Now, you say, well, we're good Calvinists. We know he has sin. Sure, but again, we're talking about a relative innocence. It's a real innocence. It's a particular sins, the things that he knows about. He knows of nothing at the time. And that's relevant if you're adopted, if you're justified, if you're a child of God, that makes a difference in your walk, and it should make a difference in your walk. That you can progress slowly but surely in the first steps of holiness. That you are and can be innocent, and many are, you are innocent of all kinds of things, in fact. Paul pleaded what before Rome? Woe is me, I'm a wicked sinner. We're all wicked sinners. I'm a good Calvinist. No, he pleaded innocence, didn't he? Right? He pleaded innocence. I didn't, I'm not going after the Jewish people. I don't hate the Jewish people. I'm not trying to undermine the Jewish people. We see that of late. It's quite fascinating. I ran across this on, again, social media. That's how you find out about a lot of things if you don't want to go through the mainstream media. And uh, some conservative Jewish woman was complaining she was appalled that a Christian politician actually witnessed to and helped convert Jews. How dare you do such a heinous thing, she said. It's so hateful. It's so what? 
what, what, what she's saying. Well, that's wrong. You're wrong. You're guilty. And the guy should not feel any guilt. He should be, he's, I'm completely innocent. What are you talking about? You can't beat me over the head with that. I'm innocent. I'm doing what God has told me to do, which is to testify of Christ when the time arises. Good for him. So innocence is a real moral category, of course, again, relative to particular sins and statuses in life and the like. Now, for some of us, for many of us, for many of things and issues in life, it's easy for us to cry for justice. It's easy to cry for justice for your family, for your friends, if they've been wrong, seriously wrong, for your community, for your countrymen. But sometimes it turns out the same people have a hard time crying out for justice for themselves. That's something else we know from this text, right? What's he crying justice for? Himself. My, hear the just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, my just cause, my innocence, my lips that have not been deceitful, my vindication. It's okay. In fact, it's most proper and should actually be done at times. We can and should cry for justice for ourselves, if it will make a difference, to be sure. But uh, in our prayers, of course, even if we don't know, we do it anyways. Especially if the issue affects those near us and always before God who reads our heart. Hear me, he says. Hear me, God. Attend to my cry. Hear a just cause, O Lord, covenant-keeping God. Always pray, having done all that you can do. Pray. Never stop praying, brothers and sisters, even if you don't move your lips. Innocent lips, he says. I am not lying about my innocence, he's saying. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. This is not a lie. I'm telling you the truth. Vindicate me. Prove my innocence, Lord. Give me public proof of my innocence. That's what he's talking about, of a righteous cause. Vindication is a very moral category. It's a very good category. It's true. We ought to pray for vindication. Vindication of the church. In this case, uh, the example of the Twitter person, uh, to vindicate the church from that charge of lying that we hate Jews. No, we love Jews. In fact, Christianity is the, f- is the fulfillment of Judaism. <laughs> Christ has come to fulfill all the promises they keep pining for and ignoring. Luke 18.7 And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Yes, avenge or vindicate. To prove right in the public sphere in particular. Now, verses 3 to 4, we read, You have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night, and you have tried me and found what? Nothing. What's he talking about? Found nothing? Nothing of what? No moral sin of the particular case that he's dealing with. I have a just cause. I have not sinned. I am innocent. God, you know that. You've read my heart. Whatever other people may misinterpret my actions. I'm innocent. That's what he's talking about here. He attests to a clear conscience uh, against the false claims of others. He hid no sin in his heart and speaks no evil against his enemy. He says, uh, in fact, I have, I have purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. I'm not going to even sin with my mouth against my enemies. Concerning the works of men, but by the words of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer, he continues. I have not followed down the path of the wicked, those people who are trying to destroy me, destroy my reputation, or whatever the particular case he's dealing with here. With the blood of Christ covering all our sins, we are able, as he does, to enter boldly into God's throne room. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is his time of need, and David believes, we know. He says, I believe in the Messiah to come, Christ to come, the anointed one to come. And he will cover my sins. Blessed is a man whose sins are not imputed to him, he writes in the Psalms. And so he comes with that boldness of Christ, knowing that his sins are covered. And in this particular case, of these particular claims of sin, he has no sin. He has no guilt. He's innocent. In the further proof of his innocence, he cries out that he has kept away from the path of the wicked, of the destroyer, of the path of destruction. Uphold my steps in your path, that my footstep may not slip unto that path of wickedness. Even when we declare innocence concerning particular sins, we must always plead according to God's mercy and grace in the blood of Christ Jesus. That's why he says here, I just cause, O Lord, all caps, right? The covenant-keeping God, the one who has promised to bring the seed to destroy the sins of our lives. The context here, again, is sanctification, the relative growth of righteousness in our life. To die unto sin, to live under righteousness. That's what we're called, and we can, and we are, because we are God's children. The second point is a plea of protection. A plea of protection, not just a plea of innocence, but a plea of protection, verses 5 through 15. Or a righteous plea, or a plea of indication. All these are intertwining themes and ideas here. One of the offshoots here is a plea of protection. This is what he wants, verses 5 through 15. He wants his path preserved. Uphold my steps in your path, that my footsteps may not slip. That is, he wants his life protected, perhaps his income, his health, his safety. We want that. We ought to pray for that. Preserve my moral walk of sanctification, certainly. He doesn't want to follow down the paths of wickedness and go back to his old ways of living, perhaps, or the old temptations he dealt with. Preserve me, God. We ought to cry before him. That's our prayer. Again, he says, hear me. I have called upon you, verse 6, for you will hear me, O God, incline your ear to me, and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you. Again, a plea, a prayer. To pray and pray some more. To pray with confidence that God hears you by the mercies of Christ. He doesn't hesitate. Oh, I, I, I have so much sin upon me. No, he knows Christ. He knows God of the covenant covers his sins. And he knows he's in a dis- desperate situation, a difficult situation, where his just cause is being ignored. And he's being perhaps lied about, or whatever the case is. And he goes quickly and boldly and says, God, help me. I need help. I'm innocent. I have not sinned, Lord. They won't shut up. And I need protection. Pray for protection, whether it's the protection of our body, of economic or health, and certainly and always of our soul. Hear me, pray, pray some more. You will hear me, O God. God hears even if we don't think so. We ought to pray nevertheless. We read some of the Psalms and it seems like you're wondering, why did he even bother praying? Because it sure sounds like he doesn't think God's hearing him. I think there's one Psalm out of the 150 that that does not resolve itself in something uh, of clear mercies or resolution, just leaves you hanging there. Because that happens sometimes in life. You feel that way, but don't go by your feelings. Follow the example of the godly man David and keep praying, brothers and sisters. The loving kindness of God, we read of in particular in verse 7, show your marvelous, your wonderful covenant-keeping kindness, loving kindness. You've heard that before. That Hebrew word behind there, by your right hand. That is, he's pleading the covenant promises of God. We plead the blood of Christ, the covenant promise of God. God has sworn to save and protect us. He does not lie. 
As our covenant king, we can bring our petitions before him because as a king, what is he going to do? What does a king do? He protects his people. He keeps his people. That's what we have in the next section, verse 8 and following. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings, Lord. You are my king, and as a king, you will protect me. We don't have that mentality in the American scene. We're told, protect yourself. Right? That's why all the gun sales are through the roof, and all the bullets are through the roof. It's not necessarily wrong that you should make an effort to protect yourself, but frankly, if we had a more godly society, we would have a little more confidence in our leaders that they would protect us, that they would care about us. But they don't. Back then, they expected their kings, even the unbelievers, to be more like a father who would protect them from wicked pirates of the sea, marauders on the land, whatever the case is. Instead of fleecing the people like we see more and more in America, unfortunately. Preserve me. He doesn't specify what. Preserve me as the, uh, or keep me as the apple of your eye. Keep me as precious in your sight. I don't want to lose your mercy. Apple in your eye is the idea of precious in his sight. Another interesting um, idiom that we got from the KJV. Some of the beautiful language of the KJV. Now, Americans like to think they're special, of course. You all grew up that way. Or the exceptional nation. It's the Christians that are exceptional, brothers and sisters. Wherever we reside on the earth, on this globe, God loves us and has a wonderful plan beyond the, this veil of tears. We are the apple of God's eye. And anyone who touches the apple of God's eye will have the wrath of God upon them. And so when he pleads protection, that's the context in which he's pleading. He knows one of the promises of the covenant is God will vindicate and protect his people from the evildoers. Even to this day, brothers and sisters, don't we need that? Don't we need psalms like this? Isn't it great that we're going through the psalms and reading these passages to remind us? It was all academic when I was a kid, right? Well, you know, sure, Christianity's not doing great in America, but passing laws and undermining Christianity and kicking them out of their jobs because they don't toe the line, that's way down the line. Well, now, well, now we're there, aren't we? Now we're finding out, let's pray for vindication, let's pray for truth, because we're innocent. You call us bigots and haters. I haven't seen such venom and hatred come out of people who say they're so loving in my life. Let's pay attention, you've seen it. Hiding in the shadow of his wings, of course, is the image of a loving care of protection that God gives us, again, in his special providence. God cares for your soul. He even cares for your body. Keep me from what, in particular? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me. The implications of what? Hide me from what? Danger from the wicked who oppress me. Verse 9, from deadly enemies who surround me. We read in earlier, verse 7, from those who rise up against them, against we who trust or believe in God. They have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. These are evildoers. People who hate the church. They have surrounded us and they crouch as lions and tigers. Now it says, from the wicked who oppress me, there's that word. We know the SJWs love to use that word, although it's never clearly defined often. It's usually defined in a very circular manner, in a very self-serving manner. If you don't have the objective moral truth of God's creation and his word, uh, that's what's going to happen to you. Oppression are, as one dictionary puts it, 
that Dr. Coppas wrote in. Acts of abuse of power or authority, the burdening, trampling, and crushing of those lower in station. I talked about this in the Micah series on justice. It talks about deadly enemies, not just socially or politically, but it seems physically. Of course, in the case of David, often it was. He was a warrior king, wasn't he? Philistines that really want to get a sword and kill him from my deadly enemies who surround me. Although he's writing the psalm here, maybe they're not physically surrounding him, literally as such, but he's outnumbered essentially. That's the picture there. Just like Christians today are becoming surrounded. we got got our wagons in a circle and we're outnumbered and outgunned. David was often outnumbered and outgunned. Physically, socially, economically, we are outgunned and outnumbered. We're overpowered and hemmed in more and more. And so we read the psalmist here and we say, that's us. I, I can see this. Maybe at work, maybe your neighborhood, but certainly as I'm speaking here collectively as Christians in this nation, we are seeing this right before our very eyes. And the enemy he describes here, who have closed up their fat hearts, that is, they're prosperous, and it shuts down their rational facilities, <laughs> and they're very proud, they're very hateful, and they oppress God's people, they have surrounded us, they have set their eyes, crouching down on the earth as a lion eager to tear his prey, verse 12, and like a young lion lurking in secret places. We've read that elsewhere, right? That language of a lion, haven't we? And who is that? But Satan, who crouches and seeks about whom he may devour. In Micah 2.1 we read, Woe to them who devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And so the picture of crouching, of laying, lurking in secret places, is that they are preparing themselves and placing themselves in the right situation, both socially, economically, and perhaps even physically, like in the case of warfare, so that they can execute their evil plans and survive and be successful. It hints at conspiracies, which we know exist, and plans. There's one such plan recently we saw um, that came up on Friday in which I think it's the Human Rights Organization or something like that. There's so many of them out there. And they're urging the president-elect to push their agenda of redefining the family. I'll just put it that way, right? And uh, go after churches, go after schools, Christian schools, and question their accreditation unless they toe the line and bow to Obergefell. You knew it was going to come. And many of you knew our politicians, that is, the conservative ones, are going to do very little about it. Those are our enemies unless they repent and believe. They hate us and they want to tear us down. I'm going to probably do a short Sunday school series on it next year. They hate you, they hate your family, and they want you gone. This is where we are. And so we go to the Psalms again, because they're so real to us. Like their master, the devil, they are lions seeking whom they may devour. Until the whole world's remade in their wicked image, they will not be satisfied. And yet our hope is in God. We do not give up. The psalmist didn't give up. He cries to him. 
in Christ our King to vindicate and protect us. And God shall vindicate us, brothers and sisters. It may not be in our time, but it will happen. It's not just about David, as you know. It applies to God's church collectively of the old and therefore of the new. Prayer for protection, verses 13 and 15, gets more specific. Arise, O Lord, not just protect me, not just hand me in to watch over me, but I want you to arise as a king to confront and cast them down, to deliver my life from the wicked with what? Your sword, the sword of justice, of vindication, of avenging. It's a call of justice. May God confront the unrepentant evildoers and enemies of his people to stop their wicked plans, to rescue us, to deliver my life and the wicked with your sword. And that sword of justice, as we know, although metaphorical, can actually be literal. Death may be involved, and often is, in the Old Testament when God protects and vindicates his people. Is this our prayer? It should be. We can read the Psalms and say, this is my prayer. Even as we have our heart set on praying for our enemies, that they would repent. Even if we see our enemies in the street, get hit by a car in front of our house, we go over there and we help them and call the ambulance. You can do both. We can walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. And we can pray these kind of prayers. Even as when opportunity arises, we do good to our enemies. Now, the way he describes these men, these men of the world, for the men of the world who have their portion in this life, this is what they have. This is all they have, brothers and sisters. They don't have the hope of eternal life like we do. My daughter asks, when she sees some of the news, we don't show her a lot of the news, when she hears about some of it, why? Why do the people want to kill one another? Why do they want to butcher the babies? Why do they want to butcher children? To say, honey, I can't wrap my head around it either. They just, they're people of this world. They're men and women of the world, and this is all they have. They have nothing else, and they care for nothing else. And so that's the description he has here. Not that it's wrong to have children, to be satisfied with your children, to give your inheritance or your possession to your babes. That's not wrong. You're told elsewhere in the Bible to do that. Paul talks about it. What he's saying is this is all they have. That's why they are children or men of this world. This is their portion. This is their allotment. This is the best they're going to have forever and ever. David recognizes this. I want deliverance from the hand of men my God, from these kind of men who, this is all they see. This is it. It's a very narrow world. The possessions, their money, their reputation, their fame, the things of this world that we know are fading. That's all they have, brothers and sisters. And to that extent, our hearts feel sorry for them. And it should. He says, I have a better way. Verse 15. My way is not the way of the world. It's a better world. As for me, in contrast to these men of the world, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Not the satisfaction of having children and more children that will have a, carry on a great name, which again is fine as far as it goes, but that's all they have and they want nothing else. I have something better, he says. I have God, and I'm going to be satisfied in his righteousness. 
We have a better world, a better world to come, brothers and sisters, wherein justice dwells, righteousness and goodness reign. It is a world where we see God's glory in righteousness, where we see him as he is by the blood of Christ Jesus. And we will be satisfied when we awake in your likeness, because this is like a dream, it seems, in this valley of tears. Let us take innocence seriously. When we are innocent, let us ask our God for vindication of our innocent through our prayers. Let us also plead for protection from evildoers for ourselves as well as our family and our churches and our communities. And in all things, let us pray to God, looking for a new world where injustice and holiness reigns forever, and we will see his face in righteousness. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and our Savior, we thank you for the psalm. We thank you for the reminder that you have worked in us so that we can and are often innocent when it comes to various and sundry sins and conditions of this life, God. Contrary to the world that tells us we are sinners, 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 and we are guilty for the sins of forefathers and their forefathers and their other forefathers that were just pounded upon over and over again of guilt. The psalmist Lord shows us a heart that is content in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ and the fact that with this particular sins in his particular case. And we have those ourselves, Lord. He has a righteous plea. He is innocent, Lord, and he prays for protection. May we do likewise, God. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing Psalm 17. We're going to sing, because I couldn't get the other two verses on here, one through four. One through four.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.